If you've been listening to this show for a while, then you'll know that I'm Scottish, and you'll know that because I bring it up pretty much any chance I can get. So what's the most ridiculous way that I could bring my home country into this show about literature from China? Well, it's probably what you're going to hear in this episode. This is a truly strange one. We're going to be talking about a poem called Bonnie Prince Tuan, which takes, well, I won't tell you what it does, because you'll find out in the interview. I'll be speaking with Li Moore of the Chinese Literature Podcast. You can look forward to that. You can look forward to me talking like I know an awful lot about the Jacobite rebellions. But before all of that, we're going to do the literature fake news, the translated Chinese fiction news. Now I've got a little bit of a sore throat uh, this fine afternoon, so I've got five news items, but I will try to get through them relatively quickly just so that my throat doesn't uh, choke up, uh, so I don't cough all over this lovely microphone and by proxy into your ear. That would be pretty gross. So our first news item is a new book called Bad Kids by Chan Zijun, or Zijun Chan. He is translated in this text by none other than Michelle Dieter. I received a copy of this book from Michelle just yesterday actually, so I should be reading it probably fairly soon, but we shall see. Uh, I, we did cover Chen Zijun on this show before, we did his The Untouched Crime, so if you're curious, check that episode out. Okay, news item number two. It's another book that has just come out. I think we've heard about this one on the show from very early on. It, its publication got delayed a little while, but it's now here. It's Shanxi Opera, uh, aka Qinqiang in the original Chinese, um, by Jia Pinghua, and the translators are more friends of the pod, Nikki Harmon and Dylan Levi King. So this one's finally out. It's published by Amazon Crossing, uh, so the link I put in the show notes just goes to Amazon page. Uh, and yeah, just, just go get it. Just go read the thing. It's got an interesting cover. Okay, another news item involving Nikki Harmon, our third news item. Uh, this is just a link to a article she has written called Found in Translation, where she takes a look at the state of translated Chinese literature today and like how and how not certain books get the promotion that they need, or they may not get the promotion that they need. Uh, I have I confess I've not read it um, top to bottom, I've just skimmed it, but it is there for you to read. Similarly, Another article I have not read all the way through, our fourth news item, it's from The China Project, which is the new name of SubChina, a very good like media news outlet thingy. Don't really know if you call it anything besides a website, but anyway, SubChina is now called The China Project, and they've got an article called Why Do China Books All Look the Same? So it's if, if you're thinking mostly of like these non-fiction ones about usually something political, they're red probably got big yellow letters for the title. There's maybe a picture of Xi Jinping or a dragon. Those books, there's sort of a, it's a breakdown with some uh, quotes and interviews with experts as to why so many books end up that way. So that, that should be an interesting one for you. Again, not read the thing. I will not pretend that I've read the thing, but the link is in the show notes. Okay, and the last news item. This one is interesting. Uh, it's a new edition of Wild Grass, uh, Ye Cao, the Lu Xun book, paired alongside with uh, Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk, also by Lu Xun. So this is a new translation, uh, translated by none other than Aileen J. Chung. And this marks the third time the Wild Grass has been translated. There's an original, or the, sorry, there is a first translation by, I believe, Gladys and Xianyi Yang, 
or Yang Shenyi and Gladys Yang, however you want to call name that couple, for I think the Foreign Languages Press in Beijing quite a long time ago. On this show, we looked at a slightly alternative style translation called Weeds by Matt Turner. Yep, that's right. And this new translation is also titled Wild Grass. So you can now get three different versions in English alongside the Chinese. This one is published by Harvard University Press. So yeah, I could just read the blurb for this thing, but I'll I'll save I'll save you that. The link is in the show notes. That's all my news items. I think my throat will thank me for being concise. So now on with the interview. Let's hear from Lee Moore and what he had to say about Bonnie Prince Tuan. Go. All right. Chapter. Chapter. Exactly. Right. <laughs> So on this show, I have Li Moore of the Chinese Literature Podcast, and of course, he's here to duel with me to the death to become the premier, to claim the spot of the premier English language Chinese lit podcast. <laughs> Not really, although dueling and battle is kind of a theme of the text we're looking at this time. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Longtime listeners of the show will have. Who've never listened to Lee's podcast before will still have heard his voice because he's been on this one before. He came on with his co-host Rob on the Mega Crossover episode somewhere around episode 50, but now he's here solo. So yeah, for listeners who don't know, he's, yeah, like I said, he's the host, one of the two hosts of the Chinese Literature Podcast, which you should all check out, especially if you think my episodes are too long because they do <laughs> nice bite-sized ones. And also... If you think my stuff is too modern, the Chinese literature podcast skews a bit more dynastic as well. Mm. So that's another thing it's got going for it. Anyway, I'll stop doing your marketing. Uh, Lee, how's it going? When what have you been up to since you were last on the translated Chinese lit podcast? Well, um, it's going good. I uh, I finished my PhD. I defended my dissertation in November, and I think I graduated technically in December of 2021. And uh, I'm I, I just uh, I, I made a baby uh, since then, so uh, we're we're about two weeks out from from the the my number two coming into the world while we're recording this. I'm not sure when where that will be in terms of when it airs, uh, but so some some uh, momentous changes in in my life. I'm also uh, I'm working on a uh, book. Uh, that is uh, essentially going to try and use the podcast as a platform that that explains some of the big news stories in China that are happening right now, but it kind of gives the backstory using literature, history, culture, that sort of thing. So, for example, I'm working on uh, a section on the Chinese economy. Now, almost all discussions of the Chinese economy today in America's news media and and what I get of of the UK's news media, uh, all of them are very kind of contemporaneous. Like we're going to look at what's happening this week, and essentially I try and take it back and and go and look back at uh, CCP history, but also imperial history. So I look in, in the section I'm looking at the Great Leap Forward, uh, the Song Dynasty reforms of of Wang Anshu in starting really in 1069. And then uh, uh, Han Wudi, the, the Han Dynasty Emperor uh, Wu, and uh, his kind of efforts at economic reform in 
I guess you could say those starting. Well, he takes he takes over starting in 141 BC, but his reforms really don't kick in until around 119 BC. So just you know, like taking a step back and looking at these stories from a, a broader perspective. And uh, does fiction enter into the picture as well, as well as the history? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I in that economics chapter, uh, I am looking at some of the poetry uh, and and some of the 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 other works uh, of literature that are associated with those those particular events. So Mao actually writes quite a bit of poetry. Oh, yeah. Uh, some of it on the Great Leap Forward, or some of it kind of touching on the Great Leap Forward. Um, these kind of uh, uh, countryside poets are producing doggerel uh, that is essentially just kind of rhymes making fun of of leaders. So there's one, uh, we don't fear the earth, we don't fear the sky, we only fear officials' lies. This is, you know, during the Great Leap Forward as they're, as they're uh, starving to death, they they kind of come up with these poems. But also, you know, Wang Anshu in the 1069 Song Dynasty reforms, Wang Anshu is the, the head of the government for a while. He's a major poet. Pretty much everybody in that in that government is themselves uh, uh, an important poet. So you've got Sudongpo, Sima Guang, uh, just some really stunning poetry actually about economics. <laughs> I feel that the UK could do well with some more poets in the government, <laughs> rather than the <laughs> I don't know what I would call them the unliterary <laughs> figures we have right now. Uh, My intro to the concept of Mao Zedong as a poet came pretty early, my time in China. So the town I was in was not the most thrilling town, but it was quite near the mountain of uh, Morgan Shan, which has a crazy history and has had visits from Mao and also uh, Chiang Kai-shek. But I was going up it, up the, there's like a, you know, a winding mountain road that you take to enter Morgan Shan's uh, sort of town on the mountain if you're going by bus or by car. And I guess that's an old road because uh, a friend in town who was on the, I guess, I think in the car or on the bus, I don't remember, with me, told me that Mao had written a poem which mentions the 100 bends or the 50 bends in the road up Moganshan. And I was like, <laughs> interesting. I would not have predicted that, but I guess it's common knowledge if, if Chinese lit from the CCP era is, is your thing. Yeah. I don't know if you know that particular poem. I don't know, but he wrote yeah. so many poems and it, it just, yeah. I would imagine any national leader could make, has the, would have potential as a travel poet just by virtue of the job. If you're a head of state, you've got to be making some trips. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, even before he was a national leader, you know, when he was just the head of the CCP and the CCP was, you know, kind of stuck in the armpit of China, he was writing poetry and he was kind of cultivating this sense that he was this, uh, I'm going to use this word uh, cautiously, but I'm going to use it anyways. He was a kind of Confucian poet emperor in the making. Uh, I think that there are lots of problems with calling Mao a Confucian, but I, I think it kind of works. I mean, Chiang Kai-shek, he didn't, I don't think he wrote poetry he, he there is a, a an, an economic book that he claimed to have written or that is attributed to him but it's uh 
I, I, I sincerely doubt he actually wrote much of it. You know, it was probably ghost written. Um, but Mao himself, for for everything nasty you can say about him, he he wrote some poetry, and it was it was decent. Right. There's a whole other episode uh, worth discussion there, but I'll keep this <laughs> moving. Uh, we're going to be talking about a little poem called Bonnie Prince Tuan. And <laughs> normally on this podcast, we look at stuff in English that has been translated from Chinese. I almost never break that rule, but I think we are kind of maybe possibly breaking that rule this time. We don't... So we... What, we don't actually on, know on. if... So this poem, we don't know if it was originally written in Chinese. Like, we just don't have that much evidence. So we, we can kind of fudge it and say, you you don't know whether or not you're breaking that rule. <laughs> yeah, plausible deniability is very important in politics, so... I'm glad we've got that. Are we getting back um, to UK so, politics then? <laughs> oh, there's a lot of plausible... Den- we had Boris as leader. Um, so yeah, everything's about deniability. And now we've got one of his acolytes. So it never, the plausible deniability never ends. Hmm. Could you tell the listeners what this poem is? So it's really, really weird, first off. Um, it is a poem by a guy named Gu Hongming, he is a Qing official, but he was born in Penang, which is, uh, at the time, British uh, colonial territory uh, in, in modern-day Malaysia. He's educated in Edinburgh, and he writes this poem for the Empress Dowager Cixi's 66th birthday. So that should be, if my calculations are correct, around 1901. Um, it's a poem written at least the English version that we have, that's the only version that I have been able to find, it's written to sound Robert Burns-like, as if it's a Scottish ballad. And again, it's the, the version that we have is written in English. Um, it's based on a Scottish ballad called uh, The Bonnie Dundee. The poem is not... <laughs> do, do, you, do you know that poem? I mean, do you know that, uh, that ballad? Keep going. I will, I will, I will spout uh, when it's my turn. But keep going. <laughs> um, the the poem is not titled in the one source where I have been able to find it. But you know, just for ease of reference, I'm just going to call it the Bonnie Prince Tuan because that phrase is repeated again and again. It takes this figure um, whose name is Prince Tuan, or or today in in modern pinyin it would be spelled D U A N, but back in the day it was spelled T U A N. Um, He's uh, a Qing Dynasty royal. His given name is Zai. He's a Manchu. He's really famous as a leader, one of the Qing leaders of the Boxer Rebellion, which was an anti-foreign movement in China from, we'll say, 1899 to really 1901. The Boxers thought that the reason that China was in the dumps at the time, in the late Qing, was because foreigners were coming in, building railroads that were throwing off the country's feng shui. Uh, they were building churches that were blocking off the sky and not allowing the sky gods to let it rain, that sort of thing. Um, and it was these, these, these hairy barbarians were converting the Chinese to this barbaric re- religion called Christianity. The boxers were a group of kind of local martial artists. They, they kind of formed form small groups uh, and they trained in martial arts they 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 thought that these martial arts were sort of magical they believed that if they practice well enough they wouldn't be killed by bullets bullets couldn't hurt them 
Um, and the boxers kind of became this giant mob, which responded to anti-foreign uh, sentiments in China at the time by murdering foreign missionaries and, and uh, their Christian converts. And they attacked foreigners. Uh, most famously, they put the foreigners in Beijing under siege for about 55 days. Uh, yeah, the, so it, it's really weird because the, this poem is, is, is incredibly strange because the boxers are anti-foreign. And yet Gu Hongming writes this poem for Cixi, and Empress Dowager's Cixi is sympathetic to the boxers. He writes it in, in, at least the version we have, is in English, in a Scottish style. And it kind of takes this figure of Prince Tuan, and it makes him into this Bonnie Prince Charles figure, which... Can can you say more about about like why this is so crazy? <laughs> okay, I would argue it's not as crazy as it seems. Yeah. So my disclaimer right off the top: I probably know more about the history of the development of Chinese literature than I do Scottish literature. To be honest, uh, my knowledge of Scottish the Scottish writers that are relevant here is is patchy, very patchy. Same with my knowledge of the Jacobites. Uh, Bonnie Dundee and Bonnie Prince Charles. I know a fair bit. Been to real historical sites, battlegrounds. Uh, we did the Second Jacobites Rebellion in school, in primary school. But I'm far from an expert, so anything I say is probably worth <laughs> fact-checking or patching together with some time on Wikipedia. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned that this is based off another poem, because I, I didn't really do much prep. That is really good to know. So I thought I might read this thing first and then read an excerpt of what it's based on so that the listeners know what we're talking about before I start rattling through Scottish history. So uh, here, here we go. To the Lords of Convention was... Sorry. To the Lords of Convention was... Third time lucky. To the Lords of Convention was twin... Fourth time lucky. To the Lords of Convention was Prince Tuan who spoke... Ere the king's crown go down, there are crowns to be broke. Then each boxer lad who loves fighting and fun, let him follow the bonnets of Bonnie Prince Tuan. Come fill up my cup, come fill up my can, come saddle my horses and call out my men. Unfurl the banner and let fire the gun, for it's up with the bonnets of Bonnie Prince Tuan. Prince Tuan he is mounted, he rides up the street. The yells they shout backward, the drums they are beat. But Li Hong Chang, Deuce Man, said... Oh, please, Sir Man Man, we will try to get rid of that deal with Prince Tuan. Come fill up my cup, come fill up my can. Come saddle my horses and call out my men. Unfurl the banner and let fire the gun, for it's up with the bonnets of Bonnie Prince Tuan. There are lands beyond Shansu and hills beyond Sichuan. If there are Changs in Hupei, then there are, there are Leos of Hunan. There are brave millions four hundred and one will cry. Hey for the bonnets of Bonnie Prince Tuan. Come fill up my cup, come fill up my can. Come saddle my horses and call out my men. Unfurl the banner and let fire the gun, for it's up with the bonnets of Bonnie Prince Tuan. Then away to the hills, to the lee, to the rocks. Ere I own a usurper, I'll crouch for the fox. And tremble, ye deals, in the midst of your glee. Ye hae no seen the last of my bonnets in me. Come fill up my cup, come fill up my can. Come saddle my horses and call out my men. Unfurl the banner, 
and let fire the gun, for it's up with the bonnets of Bonnie Prince Twan. I think this is really good. I was about to to swear there, but I'll just say it's really <laughs> flipping good. But that's because I think it's a pretty close crib of the source material with some words changed. I'm looking at the, the poem Bonnie Pudundi. Um, I'll just read a few verses so that uh, readers can get the idea. Readers? Listeners, I mean, so the listeners can get the Chabodua. idea. Chabodua, exactly. Dwaita. To the lords of convention, twas clavers who spoke, ere the king's crown shall fall, there are crowns to be broke. So let each cavalier who loves honour in me come follow, follow the bonnet of Bonnie Dundee. Come fill up my cup, come fill up my can, come saddle your horses and call up your men. Come open the Westport and let me gay free. It's room for the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee. Dundee he is mounted, he rides up the street. The bells are rung backward, the drums they are beat. But the prophet Dusman said, just e'en let him be. The good town is well quit, is we'll quit of that deal Dundee. And so on. So, so I that's, think this that's may not be close. a translation. Yeah, I think it's a translation in the sense that he's <laughs> he's adapted it from Scots to another slightly less Scots Scots. Right, so history, what what the hell's going on? Bonnie Dundee uh, was the leader of what's known as the First Jacobite Rising, or the First Jacobite Rebellion, and to put it as simply as I can, those were rebellions led by Highlanders, so not just by the Scots, not all the Scottish army, not the Scottish government army, but a rebel army of the Highlanders, who are the last, or were, sorry, were the last clan society in Europe and have been sort of left out of the industrialization, or not industrialization, like the sort of modernization that was going on in modern Scotland and modern England. Around this time, big changes had happened in the monarchy uh, that ruled over Scotland and England. I think at this time, this is where I'm fuzzy, is where the governments of Scotland and England joined, because the unification of the crowns happened long before the unification of Scotland and England's governments, if that makes sense. It was it was James King, James the first after Elizabeth died. James the first was the king. Yeah, that was the right bingo. That was the union of the crowns uh, when Scotland and England's monarchies merged, but the governments didn't merge until and that's where I'm fuzzy. Maybe a hundred or two hundred years later, and I think this is around that sort of period of upheaval. Hmm. But the other big upheaval here is, um, I guess, the this is where my history is patchy, but basically uh, the monarchy has switched permanently um, to, um, it's away from the Stuarts. The Stuart family who were, this is the interesting thing, when the, the Scottish and the English thrones merged, it was the Scot, the Scottish kings and queens who took it. Of course they became anglicised immediately. So the Stuart family, which I'm a part of, became the monarchs. <laughs> um, they were very Frank Frank Frenchified. That's why that spelling of Stuart switched to S T U A. Um, so there was these sort of Catholic monarchs, very French influenced, European mainland influenced Catholic, Scottish influenced Catholic monarchs running the ruling the throne. But um, I guess around the time of the Civil War and the Charles the First and Second, they were replaced by William and Mary 
these Dutch, uh, I guess, relatives, monarchs who came over and made the throne Protestant, which it is today, which tells you who won out in the end. So around this time, you have the Jacobite rebellions, which are, I guess, a confluence of influences. So one would be the Highlanders trying to fight for their place, but another would be the sort of romantic movement and a romantic push to bring back these Catholic Stuart monarchs. So it's all quite messy, and it doesn't necessarily neatly translate into Scotland versus England. Um, I know at the conclusive battle of... I said I would make this brief. I'm failing, amazingly. (laughs) Uh, The last battle of the second Jacobite rebellion that ended things for good, there was more Scots on the side of the uh, British government, the London government, if you like, than there were on the Jacobite side. And there, so there were Scots and English on the government side, and I'm sure there would have been some English on the Jacobite side who were fighting for the cause. Angus, can I ask a question? Uh, Go for it. So you said that it's not a purely England versus Scotland thing, but today, no. and and when Gu Hongming is, is writing, it was read as an England versus Scotland, a kind of like modern versus anti-modern kind of thing, right? Yeah, This is where the romanticism, I mean, it is broadly true. If you were to cartoon it, that is not a bad way to paint with a broad brush. Um, But the romanticism really feeds in here uh, because the Jacobite cause was a romantic cause. Like they weren't communist revolutionaries. They were fighting to replace the monarch with a different monarch. So it's maybe not the noble cause that of Scottish independence that say William Wallace and Robert the Bruce had fought for centuries before. This one, looking back from what you might call like a liberal Western perspective, feels a bit more silly and wasteful. Um, (laughs) But of course, as a Scottish person, you might be inclined to feel proud about it. But anyway, I mentioned romanticism because the author who wrote the poem Bonnie Dundee is Sir Walter Scott, who was one of the the biggest name in a movement of authors who were writing these romantic novels, um, which were often using the Scottish Highlands as their source because it's this very romantic thing, this traditional traditional heroic uh, culture that's fighting for its place but is going to lose. Nothing more romantic than a doomed cause. Yeah. It wouldn't be romantic to take the side of the nicely uniformed, uh, disciplined British armies. That's not cool. Whereas it's much more cool to root for the, I don't know, the, the young woman waving goodbye to her her lover somewhere in the glens as he goes off to take on take on the government. So you can maybe see where the parallel with the boxers is coming in, where it's like a it's a countryside doomed rebellion. It's not exactly a rational rebellion if it's about feng shui violations. But <laughs> similarly, there are real violations there. The violation of their their land, their culture by imperial forces. And I don't, I don't think, I don't know if you could really call the encroachment of modern society on the Highlands imperialism, but you could probably file it under some similar category of like encroachment. I, I actually would say imperialism is such a protean, protean category that, that I, I think you totally can. Um, you could spin it that way. Yeah, yeah I think. Um, it, it is, it's worth saying as well, they had a, a Gaelic Celtic culture, which is, it still exists in parts of Scotland, but that's often because of government support. After 
the second Jacobite rebellion was defeated, uh, I believe Tartan, Bagpipes, and Gaelic were outlawed. So it's maybe no surprise that those are such a big thing in the imaginary Scotland and Highlands that comes later in the writings of people like Walter Scott. That culture, which had already been, <laughs> had in the past been crushed, was brought back into the literature as an amazing sort of selling point. Um, I, the Highlanders were later. Sorry, go on. I, I should just say, so, so my dad is, he, I mean, he's a McDonald on one side of his family, and he has this, right. he has this kind of, I don't know if it's infatuation is too strong of a word, but he, he very much kind of adores Scottish culture um, to... Americans are known for this. <laughs> yes, it's it's a thing. Like, there's a Scottish festival everywhere. I don't know if, Angus, I don't can't remember if I told you this, but Oregon actually has a town named Burns after Robert Burns. Burns. And, and the high school Very is nice. called uh, the Highlanders. They're, that's their mascot. Um, I was just there a couple of months ago, actually. Uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. You'll, you'll, I, I assume that, that it, it, it would be very difficult for most of your listeners to get there, but it's, um, there, there's some, some interesting hiking and mountains out, out that way. Awesome. This is brilliant because this is what I was getting to. The Highlanders were later dealt an economic blow, I guess basically partly by the arrival of capitalism replacing feudalism, but also the fact that their lords and ladies were away down in London. So the clan, the clan leaders who were the traditional leaders of Highland society became Co-opted. absorbed into the, eh, I think just absorbed um, into the, the sort of aristocratic but increasingly capitalistic ruling class in, in London. So what happened was their crofting, their farming cottages were um, replaced with like sheep farming done by uh, landowners. So they were, this what I think at the time was a quite a large population in the north of Scotland was forced off the land and being, you know, it's not exactly welfare state Britain. They've just got nowhere to go. Um, so that's why there are so many Scot people of Scots ancestry in the States, but especially Canada. Mm. Um, they were, there was a huge wave across the Atlantic uh, at that time. And that was sort of the, the final nail in the coffin of Highlands culture because their language... Uh, Gaelic, which, if I'm being technical, if you say Gaelic, it technically means the Irish version. Gaelic is technically the Scottish version. Hmm. That had already been crushed culturally, and now the population itself left. So Highland culture in Scotland mostly exists these days as little tartan hats you buy in Edinburgh, which is far from the Highlands, and uh, Gaelic, Gaelic, sorry, does still exist, but it's more or less on life support. Contrast that with Ireland, where Irish Gaelic is still a thing. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I, the reason I'm bringing up the Romanticism is that's the bleeding figure of that is Walter Scott, and our guy uh, who, like Gu Hong Ming, sorry, he must have been influenced by that literary movement while he was in Edinburgh, because that's the writer he's chosen to crib for his poem about the boxers. Can I ask, so you know way more about Scottish history than I do, and we were talking about this in kind of in in emailing back and forth. Do you think that this, uh, this comparison works for you in terms of, from a, a Scottish perspective? Uh, it's not one for one, obviously not. 
But um, I don't think it's invalid either. Like, I think the fact that the boxers were initially going up against the Chinese government, the imperial government, is not a bad parallel at all with the Jacobites, because they initially, I guess they they completely were. Um, yeah, the, although the, maybe the difference is they had aristocratic leaders, whereas I guess the boxers, they later got support too late from Cixi, uh, the Empress, but they, from what I understand, they were quite grassroots. Yeah, very much grassroots. And and but yeah, you know when I when I looked at uh, some of the, the so the the best study on kind of literature and history around the boxers is uh, Paul Cohen's History in Three Keys, and it's interesting because you he makes the observation that you know the boxers have been viewed differently at different points in history, like completely differently. They've been viewed as as kind of the scum of the earth and the salt of the earth. Uh, but initially, you have very much the, the Chinese elites who are looking down on the boxers. And someone did a survey of 5,000 poems written during the Boxer Rebellion or shortly thereafter. And uh, they concluded that 90% of these poems were... Uh, negative. Now, I don't, I don't know how you come up with those numbers, but, but definitely, it's being perceived in a in a, a negative fashion. Right. I can think of a few more parallels. So one would be related to the fact it's a peasant uprising is equipment. So the the Jacobites are or the Jacobite soldiers were Highland soldiers, so they're famous for wearing uh, their plates just like tartan fabric into battle. They, uh, their one thing they did have, supposedly, was the traditional two-handed sword, the claymore. So you might have a bayonet on the end of your gun, but if I come at you with a claymore, then, assuming I don't miss, then you're, there's going to be two smaller pieces of you, and <laughs> I'll be fine. Um, so yeah, they were scary. Um, they were, I think, that they were famous for their charge, the Highland charge. That was something through history that the Highlanders had that the other people of Scotland, like Myself, an East Coast, uh, an East Coaster wouldn't have had. So they have this military prowess, but also in a formal battle against a better provisioned uh, opponent like the British government troops, they would really need, um, yeah, like a flat field battle. They're not going to win. Uh, the Battle of uh, Culloden, that one I mentioned, where there was more Scots on the government side. Um, the government troops started the day with a full bowl of um, porridge and maybe some, some meat or some cheese or something. And the uh, Jacobite soldiers started the day on a cup of water and a couple of oat cakes, tiny little <laughs> biscuits. So, yeah, there's that parallel. Another might be how well they did before losing. So if I understand correctly, the um, boxers actually captured Tianjin um, before that they before they got purged is that right i i believe they captured it for for a bit um but then right tianjin became the port which the eight uh eight <clears throat> nation alliance kind of took over and and uh began their invasion from and i i think the boxers captured tianjin but tianjin because it's on the coast there it's so hard to defend if you've got these giant battleships just willing to shell the the uh shell the heck out of out of them so 
they it was it was kind of a hopeless capture if i remember correctly right yeah so the jacobites in both their risings i believe gave quite a solid kick to the hornet's nest at the very least before getting stopped so the the first leader of the first rising that's bonnie dundee the guy that um uh the guy that walter scott's poem is about and that's the poem that um go I keep I keep getting mixed up whether it's Gu Hongming or who yeah Gu Hongming not Hu Gongming. Uh, that's my brain really wants to say the other wrong one every time. It so yeah, uh, Bonnie right? Dundee's Hu is a much mm, more common last name. Right. Yeah. Uh, so Bonnie Dundee is most famous for a victory, not a defeat. Um, that was at Killy Cranky, which is a very uneven landscape. It's probably why the Jacobites won there. But he also died there. I think he got shot somewhere on the sides very near the end of the battle. Right? Yeah, very romantic. There's also an amazing spot at Killy Cranky uh, called Soldier's Leap, where it's like a big gap between two, ro- two rocks over a drop and then some water. And I think the water is deep enough that if you drop down, you won't get hurt. And that at that spot, uh, the legend goes, a government soldier was fleeing the Jacobites and he leapt right over the, the little gorge to the other rock uh, in an almost superhuman leap. So it's all, you know also very romantic. Um, and it's romanticism on both sides as well. It's sort of an ambivalence there where you have the, the baddie or the nominal baddie does something heroic that has been remembered. Yeah, so I don't know exactly what led to the downfall of Bonnie Dundee, but that one fizzled out. And then the second rebellion was a much more... Uh, that one's remembered. That's the Bonnie Prince Charlie rebellion. Uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie's a bigger deal than Bonnie Dundee. He was one of the exiled. Well, I don't know how exiled he was. I think yeah, he was exiled. He was living in France, uh, so he'd lived a, a a life of you know kind of wealthy dejection in um, in mainland Europe. So a bit like Daenerys Targaryen, the mother of dragons from Game of Thrones, but he wasn't living in poverty. So he comes back and kicks off a rising and I think has a reasonable amount of fanfare and I believe he won pretty much every battle until his last one and he didn't just fight in Scotland he went south of the border and I think was in striking distance of London uh, when against the advice of his advisors he turned around and went back to Scotland and that's where he lost uh, uh, Culloden finally so yeah these sort of doomed doomed leaders he's he's i think supposedly he was handsome he was young he was brave whether we believe that or not you decide i mean the other narrative would say he had no good reason to come back he barely spoke i think you know english and scots were not his first language he got a lot of people killed and he died in comfort in rome much later age 67 so yeah you can you can you can read read these events in history few different ways but if you're trying to write a good stirring poem you'll probably pick the first option and it's like you said you it's kind of the cartoon version of history uh you know england versus scotland modern versus kind of pre-modern uh the battle of the boyne in ireland is is similarly famous as this kind of england versus ireland catholic versus protestant um, but actually, it's much more complicated. The Pope was actually supporting the Protestants against the, you know, the, there's just all kinds of, of stuff. And I think that same thing is, is true in the boxers. You can, 
you can read like there's no right way to read the boxers, but you really have to be careful uh, because any 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 clear choice of these guys were good or these guys were bad is going to be like easily kind of brushed aside because they're you know like they were yes they were fighting imperialism but they were also murdering random people for for religious choices um you know yeah there's there's an exciting way to read history and then there's maybe a right way and it's hard to have both (laughs) I'm actually reading uh, Mo Yan's book Sandalwood Death just now, and that's kind of about the Boxer Rebellion, but it allows itself to be ambivalent by not actually being about the Boxers. It's set during those events and they inform the, the drama. So that's, I guess, a good way to do a historical novel is you don't need to go for the big juicy target like um, like Gu Hongming has done in this one, Bonnie Prince Tuan. I don't know if I got much more to say about the history. Do you do you have anything? you dad not really no i think you covered all the bases all right i believe you had a question for me about how scottish this one this poem sounds yeah uh so i so i was at a a think tank in dc and i met a guy from hang on i'm gonna say it correctly orkney not the orkneys right it's orkney um there are a few different aisles that make up orkney so you could say the orkney aisles or you could say orkney both, both would be right. So I'm going to say, I'm going to, because he told me he would punch me if if I said, if I put the, the defi- uh, definite article. No, he didn't. He's quite a nice guy. But he, he said, you know, say Orkneys or Orkney. Um, so Ork- he's saying Orkney is, you could say Orkney or you could say the Orkney Isles. Okay. Don't say, don't fudge it halfway and say the Orkneys. Okay. So he was from Orkney and he said that this poem was actually just kind of it was not at all there was nothing scottish about it um how scottish does it feel to you because it i mean when you read comparing the 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 guong ming and the bonnie dundee it sounded really similar to me but you know that's completely out of my wheelhouse right i can see what he's saying because there are not many scots words in uh, guong ming's rendering it most like ninety five percent of it reads as plain English, whereas, so I inflected my, well, my accent slash a stronger version of my accent into some of the lines, like instead of with I was going into a bit more of like we, we, uh, things like that. Bonnie Dundee definitely has some Scots words in it, um, like. Well, deal. Deal is actually in both of them. That means devil. Uh, what else have we got? Kuthi. That's terrible. I should know what kuthi means. Kuthi and slee. So like Deuce. cunning and sly. Deuce uh, means sweet. I didn't know that. I had to check that. Um, yeah. So there's there's um, the Walter Scott one, to be honest, is not as Scots as it could be either. Um, a Burns poem might read as a bit more Scots, I think. Mm. And the Gu Hongming one, uh, even even less so. But I think not everything is in the words. I'm just going to see if how many of the sort of Scots words I can spot in this one. So we had Deuce. Sir Man Man kind of sounds <laughs> Scots, I'm not sure. Uh, deal, uh, that's definitely a Scots version of Devil. 
We've, um, we've mentioned Robert Burns a couple of times. Should we remind yeah. the listener who, you know, like that they have obviously oh, yeah. heard a Robert Burns poem because everyone on the planet has heard a Robert Burns poem, <laughs> right? Yeah, they love, um, in China, they love uh, Auld Lang Syne. Yeah. But it's... they don't all know it's Scottish. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I can I can make this one a personal anecdote. So in when I lived in Edinburgh, I was somehow on relatively cheap rent in the centre of the city in wow. a close, which is like a courtyard uh, in a flat there. And we were our close was connected with the next one down. And in that next one down was the writer's, I think it's just called the National Writer's Museum or something. And it's a small thing in this quirky old town Edinburgh house. And it's devoted, it's not about all the writers of Scotland or all the writers of Edinburgh. It's devoted to three of them. Walter Scott, who wrote Bonnie Dundee, that uh, Bonnie Prince Tuan is is uh, based on. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson, of Treasure Island fame. He was from Edinburgh, or at least he was Scottish and had a re- he had a granddad in Edinburgh. Um, and Robert Burns, who's the national poet, basically. He's if you were to say if you were to ask me who's the Lushun of Scotland, I would probably <laughs> say Robbie Burns, not Walter Scott. Because Robbie Burns had some feet on the ground, uh, as well as being more famous, he had much more of a working man's perspective. I guess there was some romanticism in his poems, but Walter Scott is, I think, much more concerned with big sweeping vistas and romantic, great big novels. Whereas Robbie Burns, it's more earthy, so he would be more of a Lucian, I think. And and he doesn't have Walter Scott doesn't have a town in Oregon named after him. He might have a town somewhere. <laughs> Um, Dundee, the city of Dundee, where I'm from, is apparently one of uh, one of six in the world. So, thank you, colonialism, for that one. I've actually been to one of the other ones in Nova Scotia, uh, Latin for for New Scotland in Canada. There's a little. It's like, sorry, it's like a house or a, a little eatery and like a swamp or something. That's from what <laughs> I remember. That's that's Dundee, Canada. Um, I've actually been to the Writers Museum there in Edinburgh. Huh. It was nice. There I liked go. it. Yeah. Free as well. Right. Um I'll get I'll I'll stop trying to catch all the, the Scots words in this thing and just say the thing I hadn't got to is that I think in, in its rhythm and its spirit, it does feel quite Scottish to me, or at least the romantic packaged version of what passes for, for Scottish um in kind of default culture in within Scotland and abroad. Um it's got that rousing feeling, uh, throw up your bonnets. And I think it's there because it's it's there because it's been inherited from the the the, the Bonnie Prince Dundee or the Bonnie Dundee poem. But also because I think Gu Hongming got the spirit. I think his time in Edinburgh as a literati probably means he understood how you write a, a rousing Scottish poem. He has not used he's used some Scots words, but I don't know, I don't think the lack of Scots words makes it not Scottish. He's, I don't know what other points of criticism your friend had. I I, I don't really... Uh, I, I don't think his criticism was um, particularly... He, he didn't lay it out for me, but he just said he didn't think it was Scottish. But then again, I mean, Gu Hongming is studying in Edinburgh. They don't really speak Scot, 
they don't they don't you know that it's a edinburgh has a complicated relationship with the scottish identity am i correct uh yes and no i think living there yeah it's it's the least scottish city in scotland and it's also the most right it's the capital it's the national capital yeah that's probably true for most national capitals though in in a globalized world it's not unique to Scotland. Sure. But yeah, it's uh, traditionally quite anglicised. Um, there's a, the most famous Scottish philosopher, David Hume, mm. was an Edinburgh guy. And I think he, at some point in his career, went on to write History of England, hmm. which yeah. <laughs> tells you what you need to know. <laughs> and it's also a seat of Scottish romanticism, which on one hand is a great national tradition. On the other hand, is kind of the victors of history, the lowlanders making up the history of the losers, the Highlanders. And if we're going way back in history, um, that side, the south-east of Scotland, was an English or Anglo kingdom for quite a while. It was part of Northumbria. Hmm. Whereas the northwest of England was part of Strathclyde, a Celtic, you know, proto-Scottish kingdom. Hmm. Um, So again, it's all very messy. Like, Scots as a language is... I think you'll usually hear people say it's an English dialect. Um, probably more my more nationalistic compatriots and or people academically invested might tell you that actually Scots and English are siblings. Hmm. One is not the progeny of the other. They're both they both have their roots in Germanic language. Like there are words in in Scotland that I might use, like kirk, kirkyard, which would be church, churchyard. And that shows its Germanic roots right away, because the German for church is Kirk. It's the same word. Um, There are bits of ancient Germanic language which are better preserved in Scots than modern English, because I guess Scots was handed down traditionally rather than in the the proverbial textbooks. Um, And then within Scotland as well, though, you have Gaelic. You have a purely Celtic, or Gaelic rather, a purely Celtic language, which and is, I guess, the difference is it's a totally different Gaelic. language group, right? Like it's not even, yes. it's not even closely related. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about that it's more different than English and French. Yeah, it's easier for me to learn any Central or Western European language than it is to learn Gaelic or Gaelic, because yeah, there's no, they are on somewhere on the same tree, but sure. they're very distant. Yes, so Gaelic is almost a dead language. And I guess has maybe moved with the times a bit, whereas Scots has evolved. Like if you read an Irving Welsh novel like Train Spotting, you'll be reading the Scots of the eighties, and an Edinburgh Edinburgh Scots of the eighties. So it's a very Scottish way of talking, but it's not illegible for someone down in England who reads it closely and maybe checks a few of the words. Since we're talking about kind of parallels between Scotland and China, would you say that uh, they're Scots? might be parallel to like Cantonese the way it functions in Hong Kong I mean uh I'm re- I'm really hesitant about all those analogies because <laughs> it we Scots love to think we're oppressed but honestly we're not that <laughs> oppressed I mean that yeah the the independence or not of the Scottish government is not as scary an issue as you know the ones Hong Kong and Taiwan sure. face so and it's always just an analogy. Analogies are, they're better or worse, but they're never, you know, they're never one for one. Um, but yeah, like modern Scots is somewhere on the spectrum or relation, you know, it's not an alien language to English like Gaelic is. 
And I guess you could say the same for Cantonese and Mandarin. So there's, yeah, there's something there. I, uh, I like to say that analogies are good as teaching devices, but they're never, they never prove anything because you can always compare one thing to the next. And, and I think we're kind of, uh, testing some of that, that water, you know, if, if we tried to prove anything with these analogies, it would, it would fall apart, but it's good to like explain. Yeah. I think they're a good starting point. If I was teaching a class of kids only with analogies, then I'd end up with a class of expert pseudo-intellectuals. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how much further I could take that one because I don't know much about Cantonese. Fair enough. So I will I will not not uh, bloviate further. <laughs> did you want to? Did you want me to jump into some of the other questions? <laughs> yeah, we should keep moving. <laughs> uh, I I realize we've kind of covered the Jacobites and the boxers. Um, I def- we've definitely done the potted history of them both. Um, we've talked about analogies. Um, so yeah, we can keep going. Uh, next next section I called the scattered remnants. First question in this category is about cross-pollination. Cross-pollination. Uh, this poem is obviously a really interesting example of that because we have a, a, a Chinese literati who went not just to the West, but to Scotland um, and went back home I think, but you know, took a little piece of um, the place he visited with him, and that's that's me. <laughs> that's why I'm doing this podcast, and I've written stories with strong Chinese elements or influences because I just yeah, I don't want to let it go. I can't let it go, and I like seeing where cross pollination of those experiences and your own you know, your your, your um, home country or your home life can go. I find it really interesting because it can produce strange uh, mutant creatures. Hmm. So, and I love seeing it in other literature. And I've seen it on this, on, in the stuff I've read for this podcast, I do see it quite often, but it's never, it's not always as in your face as this poem. So I wanted to ask you in Chinese lit, you've read, um, like, are you struck by interesting cases of, Chinese writers taking influences from like outside Han culture or from outside the borders, the borders. Yeah. Um, so it was done, but only very rarely before really the, the 1880s or, or 1890s is really when it got started before that you'd have some examples of it, but it was very shallow, I guess is the right word. I don't want to, I I don't. I don't want to sound pejorative, because um, I'm not. I'm. I'm not saying it's a a bad thing to be shallow, but it was. It was very much kind of like the um, other was imagined, but it was just a stage on which you could, or a screen on which you could project kind of discussions of Chinese society. So, to give you an example, Li Ru Chen is the author of the novel Jinghua Yuan, Flowers in the Mirror, and there's a, a 1965 translation of that that novel into English. I don't know how good it is, but it, it, the, the novel itself is, is pretty crazy. It's a fantasy novel written in 1827. These female flower goddesses fall to earth from heaven. They take the bodies of men and they're forced to travel from China to a bunch of different countries. Um, you know, they, it, it's kind of like it, it is very much a Jonathan Swift kind of, 
of adventure where you're going to these different imaginary countries and criticizing things about China. So the most famous of these countries is the the country of women. Um, this is a country where from the the Qing perspective, things are topsy-turvy and women rule. And so these men who are actually female goddesses, it's kind of confusing, they uh, they are forced into this uh, submissive position. They are forced to get their ears pierced. They uh, Their feet are broken in order to, to fit into their shoes, which is an obvious critique of the, the Chinese practice of foot binding. Uh, it's very weird. Um, it's like Gulliver's Travels, travels, but with a very feminist twist. Um, but like Gov- Gulliver's Travels, it's not really about a real foreign country. It's about like foreignness just becomes a kind of empty vessel into which you can pour ideas about China. Um, once you get to the 1890s, though, this cross-pollination really takes off. So one of the most famous books uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, just before the Qing fell, uh, one of the most most sold books in China is actually Uncle Tom's Cabin, the uh, 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 Harriet Beecher Stowe work. Uh, it's translated by Lin Shu, who is probably the most famous, one of the two most famous translators in the late Qing. Lin Shu doesn't speak English. He doesn't read English. He What he does is he gets these these uh, normally foreign Christian converts, sorry, these Chinese Christian converts to translate the book sort of into Chinese from English for him. And then he translates it into classical Chinese, Wen Yanwen. Um, and uh, the, the novel, he completely changes bits of it. Uh, so instead of being about Uncle Tom, it's actually about a character who's sort of a secondary character in in the original novel and this is about it's it's more about him going to Africa and kind of getting back and and setting up a society and kind of uh, uh, finding freedom and then the novel's name itself I think has changed it's more like uh, instead of Uncle Tom's Cabin I think the uh, Lin Chu's translation of the title is something like uh, uh, the black man cries to heaven or something like that um, and in the preface Lin Chu is writing about this novel and he's saying you know look these western powerful countries are doing to china what they are doing to indians and poles and iranians if we the yellow people and that's his term not mine don't fight back we will also be made into slaves just like has happened to uh, black folks um and so it's kind of a clarion call to get people to to get the Chinese people to wake up um, but it's also kind of uh, a, a recipe for getting out of that that um, uh, the the western western countries uh, hegemony so that that's a good example but there are lots of examples of cross-pollination happening in the late in the 1890s and the 1900s. Um, of course, we have to mention Lu Xun, right? Diary of a Madman. It's uh, originally inspired by a Gogol novel from Russia of the same name, though. Yeah. Have you read the the Gogol novel? Uh, it's on my list, but it's been on my list for years now. I've not read any Gogol. I've I read it like a decade ago. It's not as good as Lu Xun. <laughs> 
Um, Chalk up one for China then. There you go. Um, so I mean, suck it, Russia. The, the, the cross pollination thing, you know, it 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 sounds it sounds negative to say they're copying something. That's that's necessarily a pejorative thing, but I don't think it has to be. Um, there are people who make the origin; they take the original and make it better, right? Yeah, I, I say this as a guy who writes two email newsletters for every week for his job. Hmm. Copying and pasting and then adapting is an art form, and it can produce wonderful <laughs> fruits. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I I don't think that um, it is anything. Eh, maybe 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 we can say that Bonnie Prince Tuan is not as original as the poem Bonnie Dundee, but there's no reason we couldn't say it's if you got something out of it if for example you are for some reason fascinated by points where scotland and china converge i can't think of anyone like who, whose box is that would tick definitely no one on this call um <laughs> if that's what you like then of course you're going to prefer bonnie prince twan to bonnie dundee yeah it's maybe less original but for a reader like that the chinese uh product is much more fun yeah there's just something there's something about uh, twisting twisting the narrative that that I think I like the Bonnie Prince Tuan better than than Bonnie Dundee. But you know, all due respect to my Scottish nationalist friends, the you know it's they're they're both uh, uh, interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, I had a thought. What was it? Yeah, I was just gonna rattle off like some products of cultural cross-pollination I've covered on the show that I think are just cool. Chinese sci-fi is, you know, that's um, a massively obvious one. Not just for, like, the crass reason that, oh, sci-fi is a Western invention and the Chinese writers have adopted it. I mean, you could make that argument, but I think it's more interesting to look at the authors who've had a, who are, like, Chinese writers have talked about having been influences, like, um, Liu Cixin talked a lot about being inspired by Arthur C. Clarke, and you certainly hear other, uh, I've heard, I think in person, I've heard other Chinese sci-fi writers talk about Clarke as being a huge influence. But then there's less obvious stuff, like I know from having covered her that Sanshua thinks Kafka is like the greatest writer ever, and yeah. is trying to channel Kafka. And like, that I think that is an interesting one because she's channeling out of Kafka a thing I don't think he's famous for in the popular imagination. People think of him as being the guy who writes about awful bureaucracy and existential absurdity. But it's also true that he, a lot of his stories create a weird backwards world where it doesn't, that seems like it might be some stranger plane of existence that is like ours, but slightly removed. And that's seems to be what Sancho is channeling, if it's anything of Kafka. So it's not just that she's cross-pollinated um, from him, but she's drawn out something that I wouldn't have thought of looking for in Kafka. So um, mentioning other folks uh, that you've covered on your podcast, uh, you did Lust Caution with uh, yeah. Claire Howe. Zhang Eileen, Alien Chang, with Claire, yeah. Um, so she wrote a work, um, uh, Zhang Ailing wrote a work called Duo Xiao Han, which is kind of based off of Jane Eyre. Um, so that's 
you know, another example. I mean, it, it's not completely a, a copy. Um, and, and honestly, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the, the, the Bronte sisters. So I, 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 and I, I adore Zhang Ailing. Um, so I, I not surprisingly think Duo Xiaohan, uh, is, is, is better than the original, but that's just a good example of cross pollinization. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you as well about, um, depictions of the boxers in literature. So you mentioned that, uh, in the the writing at the time, it was almost over. It was overwhelmingly negative. I've covered the boxers, I think, or I've covered a book that covered the boxers, I think, just once on the show, I think, and that was no two actually two, and they're both by the Tianjin writer Feng Jitai. His uh, faces in the crowd. Uh, it's the English translation's name. That has one one of its little uh, vignette stories has a female detachment of uh, rebel soldiers show up in the city, but then uh, a looking glass world again the English translation uh, title that's about a doomed romance that happens again romance that happens during the boxer uh, capture of Tianjin, which is how I know they captured Tianjin briefly. Um, and now I'm reading that Mo Yan book I mentioned, Sandalwood Death, which is set amidst all that hurly-burly. So I just wanted to ask, like, aside from reading up on the literary coverage, poetic coverage at the time, like, what, in your studies and in your reading, where have the boxers popped up? In, lit, in fiction and lit, that is. Um, so pretty much every time the boxers pop up, they're like a response to the... Uh, changes that are happening on the ground in Chinese politics at the time and really have nothing to do with uh, the boxers themselves. Um, so the, you know, Chen uh, Shou uh, actually is uh, one of the first people, Chen Shou, uh, sorry, Chen Shou is one of the first people to kind of romanticize the boxers. He says they are a um, kind of anti-imperialist rebels. And Chen Shou is writing just a couple of years after the, probably two decades after the boxers. Um, Chen Shou is, of course, one of the founders of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, he is uh, one of the leaders of the May 4th movement. Uh, so he's very a very influential figure, and he takes up the boxers' cause to a certain degree. At the same time, his former friend uh, and sort of guy leaning towards America, Hu Shi, is pretty anti-boxer. Uh, he he kind of views them as this this rabble rousing group of of unwashed masses uh, that that are um, that you know it's not really that that big of a deal that that they were all killed off um, again and again. You have this kind of uh, uh, du- dual perspective on the boxers the the. When the communists take over, the boxers become this, uh, again, this anti-imperialist peasant uh, mob that although I think that people, you know, in the CCP writing in the 1950s would have said they were channeling their energies the wrong way, they were kind of perceived also as forerunners of of the communists. The communists took that anti-imperialist energy and they got it into the right channel, uh, a constructive channel that is the, the, the CCP. Um, 
But in the 1980s, you have this move away again from the boxers as being good and, and a move towards the boxers being this this kind of the unwashed masses. Uh, uh, Liu Xinwu, who's one of the first really big post-Mao writers, writes a semi-fictional account in 1985 of Chinese rioters. They, they riot after the loss of the Chinese soccer team to the the Hong Kong soccer team. And uh, Liu portrays the rioters as if they're boxers, and he does it in a negative way. So that's kind of a uh, a really modern interpretation or reinterpretation of, of, of the boxers. Again, it has almost nothing to do with the boxers themselves. It's, it's the boxers as a symbol. Uh, 1989, You've got the Chinese government who is who feels that it's being bullied by foreigners who are sanctioning them just for, you know, quote unquote, keeping the peace. That's that's how the you know Beijing feels, uh, and they again uh, uh, throw out the boxers as a symbol of victims of of foreign oppression. So there's this kind of back and forth uh, that relates to the politics of the day that that throws the boxers up as a, a pretty powerful signal of certain things. Yeah, I that book I mentioned um, uh, a minute ago, Looking Glass World, the Feng Chi one, that was an interesting one uh, for me because I, working with Sinoist Books, I helped out with the production of that book. And when you're doing production, uh, you kind of want to just focus on the story. Like if you're picking a font and having input into the cover design, you don't want to um, bring in the modern day uh, politics and for translated literature, literature it's especially fiddly because the book um, was from a few years ago I think it was one of the newer Fung novels but he had written it a one instance of uh, you know modern Chinese relationship with the outside world and we were publishing it later when uh, the relationship had got worse I guess um, <laughs> so on one hand you want to you know, you're not the academic, you're not the reviewer. It's not your job to uh, interpret in, and bring in the modern modern politics. But you also got to write the blurb. Um, I was one of the co-authors. I, I talked with Daniel Lee uh, when I had him on. Me and him pretty much wrote that blurb together with some input from the editor. And you do want to kind of try and hint at, um, at the metaphorical... Uh, wider significance of, of the story but also it's not um it's it's written to be a good story as well and you've got to sell that in the blurb mm. so yeah it was just an interesting um way of dipping my toes in, into those uh those uses of history in, in in the literature i i don't think i got any other questions about the boxers for you uh, are you good to move on to the next section yeah absolutely all right cool um, so the next section is the miscellaneous section, and I always start this by asking if uh, the guest would like to suggest a word of the day, a Chinese word of the day. I, I didn't actually prepare one myself, but what I'm going to do right now is look up the Mandarin word for Jacobite, because I think that would be very funny. But do you have any words? So I was going to go with Guangji. Uh, so the best memory is not as good as the palest ink when we you know, when we think about how the boxers are remembered, 
it's constantly shifting and and the the sort of social memory of the boxers has changed again and again and it's only really with historical records that we can go back and know what the boxers were or were not actually about um so there's there's this sense in trying to deal with the boxers that if you don't have something recorded from that time period it's something written down or a photograph or whatever it is then you're just constantly dealing with these kind of shifting mythologies that is a very good one so i looked up how to say jacobite and pardon my martyring of the tones but it's yagabupai yagabupai doesn't really sound like <laughs> jacobite but i realized it's pi as in like party or clique so that works i guess so I guess Yagobu is like Jacobite, and then Pi is, yeah, Pi is the, the fact it's a movement, a somewhat political movement. I don't think that, I think, I guess the first three characters are just uh, just phonetic. I'm guessing they don't have any relevance. <laughs> that is cool that they were able to integrate Pi into that. Yes. <laughs> Which clique are you in? I'm in the Yagobu clique. You wouldn't have heard of it. <laughs> Right, um, a piece of music. I I did not prepare for this one, but I have thought of two musical pairings off the top of my head. Uh, but before I unload those, if you could set this poem to a piece of music, perhaps for a reading, perhaps for the movie adaptation, where all the boxers are wearing played, uh, what would it be? I struggled with this, but I'm going to go with uh, Enter the Haggis, their song Ride My Monster, which is a, a, you know, a, a kind of folksy, fun song about a, a guy who, has, who grows up with his monster from, from the lock. It's, it, I don't think the song explicitly says it, but it's... It's, it's uh, Nessie. It's Nessie, yeah. Um, I just kind of thinking of the, the Scottish elements of the song and how, how it starts out kind of slow and then kind of amps up into this cheering anthem it, it seems Enter like, the haggis into the haggis amazing yeah and now I am a big strapping man and soon again I go riding every chance we can and together we three rode the swells and one day we Had, had you not heard of them? Nope. Oh, man. <laughs> no, I somehow managed to avoid that. I was um, I was speaking of uh, cultural uh, cross pollination. Da- again, Daniel, uh, Daniel Lee, obviously knows the books I'm talking about. He he messaged me recently some TikTok clip of a Scottish Indian wedding, um, <laughs> which he thought was very amusing. And to awesome. me, it's not that crazy because we have a fair number of uh, South Asian Indian people in Scotland. Yeah. Um, but I said, yeah, India and Scotland, it's a very powerful combination. And he said, yeah, curried haggis, that would be pretty good, right? I, I thought, yeah, curried haggis would be good. But we do have a Scottish Indian dish. Uh, it's a curry, chicken curry pie. Oh. It's quite good. If you're in Scotland, uh, try and get a pie. Uh, why the hell did I bring that up? I don't know. Enter the haggis. Enter the haggis. Enter that. Yes, that's it. Haggis. That was the link. <laughs> okay, so I've got two songs. I'm going to be self-indulgent and name them both. One, I think one I picked because it's Scottish and it's rousing. And it's like our national rock band these days, basically. Biffy Clyro. 
Have you heard of Biffy Clyro? No. No, I'm not sure how big they are. They're big in England and I guess all of the UK and maybe Ireland, but I don't know how big they are abroad. Uh, but in any case, they've got a song called uh, The Wolves of Winter, which I think came out um, when Game of Thrones was at its peak of popularity. And it it's kind of non-specific. It's just about sticking together and surviving, but it has a very rousing sort of quasi-military uh, masculine feel to it. So I've got that. I'll uh, have to make that down. The choice to survive the winter We have achieved so much more than you possibly thought we could not Scottish at all but it is Celtic influenced. You might know this one. Shipping off to Boston by... oh bugger what are they called? Oh that's terrible I'm gonna have to look this one up. I'm gonna kick myself. Shipping off to Boston. Dropkick Murphys, an, Amer an American Irish band. And I've picked that one because there's cultural hybridity. It's American Irish and it's used quite famously in the film The Departed by Martin Scorsese. So that's a real explosion of pollination because mm -hmm. that movie is a crib of infernal affairs, a Hong Kong cop movie. So we got America, Hong Kong. Yep. You know, Hong Kong is Chinese in some way. I'll let listeners decide in what way. Uh, <laughs> um, Delic delicately maneuver around that issue. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm not even going to use more words on that one. You got America, Ireland as well. Um, but then it, Scorsese himself uh, making a movie with American Irish characters is really interesting because I think he made that one after or around the time he did Gangs of New York, which is also strongly, it's very much about American Irish people. But he himself is most famous. He's American Italian and he's most famous for making films about Italian-American mobsters. But he took an interest in the history and, I guess, present of uh, the uh, Irish-Americans because he saw that they, although they arrived in different periods of time, there was some common struggle and common commonalities in the lives they lived as like an underclass. And that makes me think of what you said about the Chinese writer drawing attention to the fact that um, their experiences, people on the receiving end of colonialism, made them not so different from, I guess, the other people of the colonized world. They, they specifically saw themselves as as like part of this uh, global global precariat at the time they were trying to, 
to construct this this shared community, which completely failed. Um, but it was something that it is crazy that you go from you know the 1850s where the the Chinese many of the Chinese think they're kind of the center of the universe to uh, the 1890s when they're seeing themselves in in solidarity right. with with people all around the world. The other reason I picked shipping off to Boston is it's extremely rousing, just like Bonnie Prince Tuan. I'm definitely going to bat for Bonnie <laughs> Prince Tuan and say it's really rousing. I enjoyed reading it a lot. And I thought, advertisement for the listeners, go listen to the episode Lee and his co-host Rob did on this poem. I don't think we've said that yet, but you've already covered this one on, on your show. And one of you did a reading, and I thought that was really good too. Yeah, that was Rob. He's He's got to take all the credit for that. He, um, yeah, I, I couldn't, I, I did not feel safe trying my, my, my horrible Scottish. Yeah, um, Nicola Sturgeon does have a missile launch button uh, <laughs> pointed at America when someone messes up. No, I, um, I, I thought uh, he, he, he did an accent and I thought he did it very well. And my, I, I articulated, I hadn't thought about this before, but I had a, a co-worker, an English guy, a, a, a local, who had a go at doing what he thought was a Scottish accent. And I said, stop, you can't do that again. <laughs> and he said, oh, so it's fine if you impersonate an English person, but... English people and I was like I stopped and I said no it's fine because I can do a decent job of an English accent <laughs> you murdered your attempt at doing Scots if our other pal had a go and he was good you know he's in my books he's fine huh? because it's not like I don't think it's a charge thing we're not we're not a colonized or oppressed people so if someone can do a good Scottish accent like uh what's his face uh who did Shrek Scottish, oh. Scottish people don't hate Shrek because that's quite a good uh, impression. And maybe it does use the trope of the angry man, the loud angry man. Hmm. But there's a lot of loud angry men in Scotland. <laughs> the one that is a bit shitty is Groundskeeper Willie in The Simpsons. Hmm. But he's so ridiculous that he doesn't even feel like, you know, he's not even, what it, am I trying to say? It's so cartoonish, obviously, because it's a cartoon. And, yeah, It's annoying when people use it as a reference, um, but on its own doesn't make me mad but yeah anyway rob i thought rob's reading was pretty solid that's that's good to hear i yeah i i was not going to wade into that water mm -hmm. i would love to have gone gone back in time and hear um hear gu lao shu read it that would have been interesting <laughs> if we were there with if we could have been flies on the wall in the the forbidden city with uh, empress dowager Tsushi and gu Hongming. yeah yeah to hear empress Tsushi speak some scots that would have been something <laughs> Do you know if she spoke English or any foreign languages? I don't think so. There are a couple of Qing officials. Uh, Prince Gong, I think, was one of them. Actually, no, sorry. So Prince Gong, I think, may have spoken English. I'm not 100% on that. But so she's, uh, I forget what the relationship was, but uh, the Guangxu emperor had studied some English. And so she had, uh, so... Sushi, let me look back at my notes for this before I say something very stupid. Okay, so Sushi was the mother of the Tongzhi Emperor. Um, and she, the Tongzhi Emperor came to the throne when, in 1861 when he was five. He lasted until 1875. Um, the official reason he died was smallpox, but rumors were circulating that he actually uh, whored himself to death in the uh, Beijing Pleasure Quarters. Uh, 
so as you can imagine, he didn't spend that much time ruling, but uh, uh, his uh, she eventually uh, murdered his wife, and uh, so she's very own the 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 wife was pregnant with her her uh, grandchild. Um, and to to maintain power, so she probably uh, not murdered, had her commit suicide. Um, so this was a very much a power hungry person. Um, but uh, the the person that eventually got installed on the throne for her to keep power was the Guangxu Emperor. The Guangxu Emperor did speak English, um, and he tried to actually push Cixi out of power and have a more foreign a government that was more open to foreign ideas in 1898 that lasted 100 days and then she she crushed it and kept Guangxu in in essentially a, a prison in the forbidden city for the rest of his life and she right before she died she had him poisoned probably we don't we don't know for sure but anyway she was very much resistant to foreign ideas though you know i i've seen pictures of her uh, having these very kind of formal tea parties with uh, British and American wives of ambassadors. So there, you know, it wasn't like she she didn't uh, she had never seen a foreigner. She she had, but but my understanding was she did not speak any English. Right. Interesting. She actually appears as a character a couple times in Sandalwood Death. Huh. That's why she's on my mind. Is is Sandalwood Death? And I know you said that the the kind of boxers are. Are, are secondary to the rest of the novel, but does he express any perspective on the boxers more yet? Um, yeah, you, you. I don't know if he expresses anything because it's definitely a work of fiction, and it uses uh, characters' POVs, and it switches between very close third person and first person. So it's hard to like extract what Mo Mo's Mo Laosha's point of view might be. The, the there's a local rebellion that happens I, the so, so a town it's it's set in Qingdao in his Gaomi like this this place he sets all his novels mm-hmm. and at that time they're in the is it the Jiao Ao uh, colony the German colony mm-hmm. and the so the Germans in their base in Qingdao are trying to build a railroad that's going to go through Gaomi and without spoiling too much that triggers a revolt uh, a survivor of an attack on a town by the Germans, a massacre goes off for a chapter uh, to get, what's the word, trained, I guess, by the boxers. And he comes back, he adopts the persona of UFA, the general who fought the... <laughs> Song Dynasty. The Jin. Yeah. yeah, the Song general who fought the Jin. And he gets two sidekicks. One is dressed up as Sun Wukong, the Monkey King. And his other sidekick, you might be able to guess, is has a rake. So he's Pigsy. he's Pigsy. Yeah. Yeah. Ju Bajia. So they lead a quite heroic but quite strange rebellion. The reason it's like that, I think, is because the leader, he's a reti- recently retired Lao Sheng, like an old man Chinese opera player. There's a local form of opera um, in the book. I don't know if it's real. It's called Mao Qiang Opera. And so it's a sort of Chinese opera style rebellion, where the theater is just as powerful as the uh, the strength, which I guess is sort of true for the boxers in a way, that they did have a performative element. And the true for the Jacobites too, in a way, maybe after the fact, they have this cultural romantic power as well as their actual strength. Yeah. I was going to say, this is not, this is just dragging things out, but I, when I was talking about how the, the Highland aesthetic has been, you know, destroyed 
by the Lowland Scots and the English and then repackaged as as our national identity. Um, so a lot of people have heard of the kilt, the kind of men's skirt style thing that is supposed to be traditional Scottish dress. Dress That is a creation of that sort of packaging. The clothes that the Highlanders wore were called plaids. So, you know, just like Americans have plaid, it was this sort of checkered pattern, but um, it covered your whole body. So I think the woman wore it like, I don't know, head to wherever, like a big dress. And the men would wear it, I think they'd throw it over the shoulder and the bottom would be like the, the part that looks like a kilt, essentially. And I think you would sling it in such a way you could use it as a pouch. Some of it would be a pouch. So the kilt, which is just a bottom half of your body piece of clothing, was adopted, I think, by the wealthy who wanted to sort of ape, dress like a Jacobite, basically. If you go through the Scottish portrait galleries, you'll see portraits of rich people in their, in their Jacobite-style kilts, but they're members of the ruling class who, had they been alive at the time, would have been probably raising armies against the Jacobites. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's, I just, it's not relevant to what we're talking about. I just... Another cross-pollination, right? In a way, yeah, between the dominant culture and the receding culture. Yeah, it's true. Uh, that's that's that section. I think I have a bonus, actually, last question in this section. It's the bonus question. So I will snip this out of the main episode. Listeners will hear garbled, but Patreon subscribers will get this thing a little further down the line. I actually hadn't prepared this question. I'm just thinking of it on the hoof. Uh, they're generally silly questions. So here it is. If you could be a character, anyone from the peasant to the emperor or sushi during the Boxer Rebellion, who would you want to be? People. And they're like, stop it. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's funny. Uh, right. I'll take us into the very final questions now. I'll probably have that cut back in so that listeners we go blah, 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 and then they'll just hear me yelling stop it shut up and then they'll be wondering <laughs> what did what did lee do <laughs> then they have to subscribe right yeah pay money to find out what we did um yeah so the further reading questions that's the final questions um you do a lot of poetry on the chinese literature podcast so if listeners want more interesting chinese poems can you well we can point them to your podcast but would you point them to any specific poems yeah, um, we have we have done quite a bit of poetry. We don't we don't always do that, um, but we have done a couple that I think really reflect that kind of cross pollinization theme that we've been talking about today. So, a, a, in the last couple of months, we did a poem on a, a Uyghur poet. So this is you know we we read the translation, but since since we all know that that the Uyghurs are part of the Chinese nation. At least that was what I heard in Beijing, and you know we'll leave it at that. Um, there is this nationalist poet that, that we did a, a podcast on. We did a, a poem on uh, a Li Bai poem. Li Bai is the 8th century Tang Dynasty poet. Um, he's famous as being kind of the alcoholic of the, the great Tang poets, and, and I have a, a poem which I translated of his, I have a poem of his which I translated as just "Let's party." It's kind of like Tang Dynasty drunken frat boy poetry. Uh, it it's a rousing good time, lots of lots of just craziness. Um, and uh, Rob and I did two poems by two Chinese poets in America, written in the first decade of the twentieth century. One of them is talking about kind of the the discrimination he faced. The other one's talking about 
he just wants to make money. He came over here. He wants to make a lot of money and go home rich. And they sort of represent two different veins of of the Chinese experience in in late 19th century, early 20th century America. And I, I guess we can put those in, you know, I can highlight those and we can put those on a on a uh, on the show notes or on, on on a special website that you can just post the URL to if that works. Yeah, I definitely will. So you mentioned Li Bai. I have to mention some poets uh, that listeners can check out. You may have heard of this translator. He's called Brian Holton. He's actually been, he's probably one of the star guests I've had on the pod. Not, maybe not up there with uh, Ken Leo, but probably in the top five, definitely in the top 10. If he's listening, then definitely top five. Um, and he, he's a fellow Scot. He's from the uh, very much the lowlands, I think, Galloway. He's from further south than me, anyway. Uh, um, so, and he, he, they have their own version of Scots there. And when he translates, he translates poetry fairly exclusively. And when he translates it, it will either be to plain good old modern English that we all speak, but he'll sometimes also do it into his own Scots. He's got a few books out. Uh, that are just that. There's one I read, um, which I re- he came on the show and he read it. I read the plain English and he read the Scots, and it was it was really cool. And at least let me stop waffling and find this book. Uh, Brian Holton, because I'm just dancing around this thing, not naming the book. Oh yeah, so he's got quite a few, but the one I'm talking about is Stone in Moline, which has. But trilingual, if you like, it's got uh, Scots, English, and the original Chinese of every poem in it. And there's one uh, Li Bai poem. I remember the Scots name. I don't remember the Chinese or the English. It's bring the baby Ben, like bring the booze, basically. <laughs> bring the booze now, quickly. It totally could be the same poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not to say... The Scots are all alcoholics. I think that is a, it's a British phenomenon, British and Irish phenomenon, um, not just a, not just a <laughs> Northern Celtic thing. But yeah, Levi, um, Levi writing about drinking does sound pretty good in Scots. That that sounds awesome. I'm gonna have to check that out. Uh, last question. I think we've established what I'm reading just now. Uh, but what are you reading just now? Uh, a bunch of different stuff. I um, I'm I just finished up Donald Westlake's The Hook. Jeremy Goldcorn on Seneca, the 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 famous China podcast. Jin Yumi, uh, as he's known. There we go. Um, he recently recommended this author uh, in their their uh, recommendation section. Um, I read one of his books, the one of Westlake's books. Uh, Somebody owes me money, and it's okay. It's kind of a campy crime novel from 1969. It feels a little bit like James Bond meets Raymond Carver, but the hook is intensely good. It's uh, two novelists meet a decade or two after they kind of knew each other when they were starting out writing. One of them has become successful, the other not. The successful one, his name is Bryce, is in the middle of a nasty divorce, and that nasty divorce has kept him from working on a novel, and his editor is calling for his calling for blood he wants the novel right now uh and bryce just doesn't have it and when he runs into the unsuccessful writer wayne um wayne has a novel but he has no publisher willing to look at it when they meet bryce ask wayne to give him wayne's novel and um they're going to publish it under bryce's name uh only there's one condition attached to that that wayne has to murder 
Bryce's wife. Uh, and the, the thrill goes from there. It's uh, that, that's pretty much the, the, just the setup. I think it's the, the first chapter. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so in, intensely good. Um, and uh, other things I'm reading, I, I just finished up uh, Jonathan Spence's The Search for Modern China or rereading that. When people ask me if I have only one book about China to recommend to them, what would it be? This is always the, the book that I recommend to them. And so I was, I was just rereading it as I was preparing for, for some other, uh, that, for that writing, the, the book that I'm writing. Uh, and then uh, I'm in the middle of Edwin Burroughs' Gotham. Uh, have, you, have you heard of that? Uh, I heard the word Gotham used in all sorts of contexts beyond Batman, but I'm not sure I know the novel. It's uh, it's a, a history of New York City from its beginnings to 1898, and it's this insanely long. Uh, you know, I'm listening to the audiobook version of it, and it's uh, it's I think 67 hours long. Uh, so, so quite long. I mean, the the King James version of the Bible is about 90 hours, if that gives you some some perspective. Holy moly! Can I just ask? That novel, The Hook, what was the author called again? Uh, so his his real name is Donald Westlake, and he has a pseudonym that he sometimes writes under. Let me check. Donald Westlake. It's strangely Chinese. Donald Chihu. Eastern inclination. Uh, so his his pseudonym is the the pen name Richard Stark. Richard S T A R K. Yeah. Okay. But I I think he's more often seen as Donald Westlake now. Got it. Um I'm all out of questions, so just last wildcard question. Is there anything we've not talked about that you want to talk about? I think I idiot that I am, I forgot to mention uh, the podcast website which, you know, we've talked about the Chinese literature podcast. It's just the Chinese literature podcast. Mm. Chinese literature podcast.com. Um, and we're on Twitter, Chin Lit Pod. Uh, and uh, yeah, check us out. Yeah. And the way I like to listen to any podcast is going through the back. Well, when I've just discovered it, it's going through the back catalog. And I know from first, first ear experience that the Chin Lit Pod has an awesome back catalog. You can learn loads of interesting <laughs> stuff. The dump, dump, what was it? Ode to a dumpster, dumpster truck. That was like one of the first few episodes yeah, I listened to. to That's just burned into my yeah. brain. That's an amazing piece <laughs> of um, uh, cultural transmission that I would not have known about if I hadn't listened. There you go. Um, yeah, Lei Feng. Yeah. All right. I uh, I will bid you farewell and say thank you very much for coming on the show. How do you say bye in Scots? Oh, huh. What would you say? I think is there Lang may your long week, but that's not so much goodbye as like a good goodwill. I guess there's one. It's a cliche. It's not. It's not Scots. Just you take the high road and I'll take the low road, and I'll <laughs> I'll be in what whatever before you. And we can both be singing Auld Lang Syne as we pass each other on our separate roads. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't think what Scots. For good- I have to Google that now. I know this isn't the most professional, concise listening experience. <laughs> Scots for goodbye. I've done an image search. That's not very clever. Uh, goodbye. No. See you after. Good luck. Good look. Good luck. No, it's, it's just, That's why you. It, there isn't really. Yeah, I guess if there was an obvious one, I would have. Um, yeah, I don't think there is a classic, iconic. Uh, probably. Yeah, Lang may your long week. You take the low road and I'll take the high road. Except that's that's a song. That's not something people say. But we're romanticizing, so it doesn't matter. 
<laughs> uh, Angus, thanks for having me on on your podcast. It's been it's been a blast. Well, that's it. Show's over. You're going to have to find something else to listen to quite imminently, I'm afraid to say. But before I vanish completely, I'll just say another really big thank you to Lee Moore and recommend again that you go, you all go check out the Chinese Literature Podcast, My Evil Rivals. I can also recommend, if you're a fan of the show, this show that is, and want to support it, that you go to the Church of Fic Patreon, the Translated Chinese Fiction Patreon, because you can get more stuff. Um, I am doing my best to keep a bi-weekly, fortnightly, if you like, trickle of bonus episodes coming up at least to the end of the year. So we've racked up, I don't know, it must be, I think it might be over 100 now. Uh, we're rack, we've racked up a very good number of bonus episodes. So even if you wanted to support the show for a couple months, you know, enjoy your access to all that stuff, even download it and hoard it and keep it, you know, I can't stop you doing that. I, I would probably do that myself if I were in your shoes. And it still benefits me because if it's a one-off or twice-off or three months of support for the show, you know, that helps, that helps me um, keep the files up, helps me pay the hosting fees and maybe contributes to the odd um, mug of nice cold beer at my local. Not that I really have a local, it might be the church in, in Moberly, if, if you're curious, if, if you'd really like to know where you can find me like once a month drinking a beer, that might be the place to look. Um, that was a strange plug. But I think I will end on that note. So just remember, before I actually vanish, the best thing you can do for the show is to spread the word IRL in person. Well, that might not be the best thing, um, but I'm just going to say it is because I've been saying that it's the best thing to do for over 70 episodes. So it's too late to turn back and recommend a different thing. So anyway, um, tell your Jacobite clan leader, tell your local Taoist sage um, in return for that recommendation of a good podcast, he should hopefully show you the right methods by which you can become bulletproof, um, which will aid you in your efforts to expel the local colonizing armies from whichever city you happen to live just outside. Maybe it's Tianjin, maybe it's Sheffield, but in any case, throw up your bonnet and forward the revolution. On that note, Zai Jian. <laughs>